Thank you, Mark. Thank you all for praying. We say one of our core values is uh, we value powerful praying. And uh, I hope that you value powerful praying, that you see powerful praying, see, see the results of powerful praying. The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we expect God to move. We believe that God's going to move. And, and uh, so thank you for that prayer moment. Choir, thank you. You sounded great this morning. We appreciate you being uh, up there every Sunday and backing us and leading us in worship and then having that special this morning. And we look forward to uh, uh, the December time in, a few, in, in just a few seconds, it feels like, right around the corner here when you guys lead us on, a, on a, that Sunday in December uh, in worship. Someone said that uh, of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to the coming back of Christ, to the second coming. One out of 30, uh, one in every 30 New Testament verses refers to the Lord's coming. Now, we already know because of our study of 1 Thessalonians that Paul mentions Christ's return. Paul mentions Christ's second coming uh, in every chapter, one way or the other, every chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Billy Graham said, Bible teaching about the second coming of Christ was thought of as doomsday preaching, but not anymore. It is the only ray of hope that shines in an ever-brightening beam in a darkening world. Paul presented this ray of hope Last week we looked at words that are hope that brings comfort as we finished up chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. But Paul, uh, as he clears up misunderstandings about the second coming, he presents this ray of hope. Now remember, Paul spent a very short time in 1 Thessalonians. Scholars disagree about how long exactly he spent uh, there in Thessalonica. But... Uh, he had to leave because of the opponents that were popping up against him. They chased him out of town. His life was in danger, and so believers got him out of town under the cloak of darkness. He and his team had to move on, and he didn't quite, apparently didn't quite get finished with the uh, teaching that he started, the instruction that he started giving about the second coming. And so uh, when Timothy brought his report on the condition of the Thessalonian church, Paul learned that many Thessalonians were confused about the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. Some believers were living very slack lives because they thought Christ was returning right away. And so they, they started neglecting basic responsibilities. They, they weren't being very good employees and presenting a very good witness to their employers. They, some had, had quit working. Some were mooching off of other believers because they didn't have the means to provide for their household because they weren't being responsible workers and responsible citizens. And so they had, had uh, misappropriated and misunderstood the fact of uh, the second coming. But they were also concerned about the loved ones who had died since Paul had left. What's going to happen to them when Christ returns? I mean, they're going to miss out uh, on, on uh, whatever's going to happen when, when Christ comes back. And they were very concerned about, about their loved ones. So Paul shared hope that brings comfort. And in our message last week, in looking at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 4, Paul shared three promises that we can count on when Christ returns. We're, we're promised a great reunion with believers who have gone on before us. We're promised that we will meet Jesus. And what a day that will be when we're face to face with Jesus. We're promised that we'll always be with the Lord. Then Paul addresses the question. You know these guys are going to be asking this because from time to time, surely you wonder this, and maybe you've asked this yourself. So when's all this going to happen? 
When's Christ coming back? How's this all going to work out? Well, as chapter 5 unfolds, as Paul continuing to, continues to address this doctrine of the second coming, uh, he uh, gets into some of this in the first part of chapter 5. So we're going to be continuing this message next week, but let's read the first four verses. Uh, or Isabella has already read the first four verses. I'm going to read verse 5 also. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So have your Bibles open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4 this morning. We're also going to be looking at a passage in Matthew 24. If you want to have a, go ahead and, and uh, give you a heads up there and turn there, have your finger there. Well, what do we see here? We can't expect, first of all, we can't expect the Lord to return, but we don't know when. We can expect Him to return, but we don't know when. We cannot predict the exact day the Lord will return. Now remember, Paul is speaking as a pastor. He's speaking as a pastor. Oftentimes we concentrate on Paul the missionary. And we look at all of his journeys and all of his interactions with the church and all of his, his instructions as he addresses problems in the church and, and uh, as he tries to help new believers get, get in the right direction growing spiritually. But now we, we see pa Paul's pastoral heart, his shepherd's heart. He's not pretending to be a theologian who has the second coming's details all figured out. However... Looking back at chapter 4, verse 15, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. He has received insight from God's word, or from God himself, from God's Holy Spirit. He has received insight from the Lord. This is not his opinion he's sharing. This is not conjecture. It is God's word. So his thoughts continue into what became chapter 5. And now he changes the subject, listen to this, from comfort to warning. The tone of his pastoral words here changes. And he says, now concerning the times and the seasons. Paul uses two words here. Times is chronos, the Greek word that gives us our English word chronology, speaking of specific time. It, it, it refers to, this word refers to a sequence of time. Paul uh, here uses it to refer to a sequence of events surrounding Christ's return. So, now concerning the times and the seasons. The word seasons is another word that refers to, to, a, uh, a, a, to time, but it's a harder word to translate into English. Rather than referring to time that can be measured, a quantity of time, like a 24-hour day or a 30-minute sermon... This word refers to quality of time. One commentator explained, time refers to more specific and precise occasions, seasons to the great moving periods of God's eternal plan. So Paul is addressing the times and the seasons. Interestingly, people throughout history have tried to predict the precise time of Christ's second coming. William Miller was a Baptist preacher in New York who predict, predicted that Jesus would return on October 22nd, 1845. Thousands of people as that day approached, and then on the day of, thousands of people in white robes walked to the top of hills waiting to be raptured, but his prediction was wrong. Edgar Wisenhunt, a former NASA engineer, obviously a very smart person, a very intelligent person, wrote a book that you may remember entitled 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. The book sold 4.5 million copies. Look around, folks. 
he was wrong. A radio Bible preacher, Harold Camping, predicted Jesus would return May 21st, 2011. Obviously, Jesus did not return May 21st, 2011. So what was it that Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1? You already know, he, he says, you have no need that I should write to you. You, you already know based on what I've shared with you and now based on what I'm writing to you that became 1 Thessalonians uh, in, our, in our New Testament, you already know everything you need to know. You already know. In fact, in, in, in verse 2 he says, you know perfectly well. For you yourselves know, five, chapter 5, verse 2, perfectly, as he mentions the day of the Lord. Jesus himself said, in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Paul says, you know everything you need to know. No, no man knows the timetable or the precise details about how God is going to engineer Christ's second coming. So if somebody lays out something very, very, very specific and pinpointed, that should raise your, your, your spiritual antennas up. Because Jesus himself said, no man knows. But God has given us basic instructions on how to live until Jesus comes. It's not a fact of if Jesus is returning. It's a fact of when Jesus is returning. So in the meantime, what are we supposed to be about? What are we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to be living our lives? The Thessalonians already had knowledge, as we see in verse 2. They simply had to put that knowledge into action. They simply had to apply what they already knew. Many of us know plenty about the Bible. Many of us know plenty of what God expects in our lives. The problem is the gap between knowing and doing. How far is that gap in your life? What is it that you know to do without a shadow of a doubt because you know God's Word that in th at this moment in your spiritual pilgrimage, in your Christian walk, you are not doing? That's what Paul's talking about here. That's what the Holy Spirit's trying to speak to us about this morning. What is it that we know to do that we're not doing? Where are the failures in our life in terms of Christian responsibility? Where, where is the gap between knowing and doing? And what are we going to do about it? as we try to please God with our living. We simply need to apply and live out what we know. Are you applying God's Word? Living out God's Word? Second, we can expect the Lord's return to bring dramatic results. We can expect the Lord's return to bring re dramatic results. The exact moment of His return is described in chapter 4, verse 16. We looked at that last week. For the Lord Himself, this is the moment that He comes back. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. There will be a shout. There will be an authoritative word like, like a wake-up call. I mean, this will be the real-life wake-up call. There will be the voice of an archangel. 
There will be the unmistakable sound of the trumpet announcing Christ's return, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So, what else will result from His coming? Paul lays out, finds out the results here. First of all, believers will be raptured. Verse 17, chapter 4, we dug into that last week. You can, you can uh, get on our Facebook page and go back and, and, and listen to last week's sermon and, and, and hear the ex, ex, exposition, exposition of this passage of uh, chapter 4, verse 17. This verse explained and this verse applied. Second, believers and unbelievers will experience a surprising arrival. How did Jesus describe the moment of his second coming? What did Jesus say? He used the picture of a thief in the night to describe his, his uh, unexpected return, the moment of his unexpected return. Let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 24 for just a moment. And look at what he says in verses 42 and 43, if you'll turn there with me. Or I'll give you a moment to let you catch up on your device as you go to Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 and 43. Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour or what day or what moment or what time period the Lord is coming. Your, your Lord is coming. These are the words of Jesus now. They're in red in my Bible. I don't know about your Bible. You don't know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, he says in 43, that if the master of the house had known what hour or what watch of the night the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. What did Jesus tell the church at Sardis in that great passage in, uh, in the Revelation, chapter 3, verse 3? Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. There's another great use of this illustration in 2 Peter. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 10. Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Think about Jesus' illustration. A thief doesn't call you and make an appointment to rob your house, does he? A thief doesn't get on the Internet and email you and, and, and try to set a time to come by and, and, and rob your house. A thief looks for an opportunity to, to sneak in when you're not around or to sneak in under the cover of darkness or to sneak in in a surprising way and uh, catch you by surprise. According to Time Magazine, 70% of burglars use social media to plan their next break-in. This article read, the next time you leave your home for any appreciable length of time, whatever you do, don't tell the Internet. Another study showed 80% of burglars use various social media to, to plan their break-in. I was curious about this, so I, I Googled um, something like home robbed after Facebook posting. And uh, some of these are the following headlines came up. 
family's home burglarized after posting vacation status on Facebook. Family robbed after teen posted pictures of money on Facebook. She apparently was helping her grandmother count her hidden stash of several thousand dollars and laid it out on the bed and took a picture of it and posted it on Facebook. Family robbed, uh, or, or rather woman's home burgled by Facebook friend after she posted on her profile she was going on vacation. But friend even texted her to ask if she had returned home yet. And she answered the text. And he and three other, uh, two other men broke into the house. Police happened to be in the area, spotted the suspicious activity, and thankfully arrested these three burglars. Folks, don't post your vacation pictures until after you return from your vacation. Nor post your whereabouts. Our thief certainly surprised us. In our Indiana pastorate, my first pastorate, we were worshiping one Sunday evening like we did at the time, uh, uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Amy gathered up the three girls after worship and, and headed home to uh, start the, uh, the bedtime routine for these three preschoolers. And uh, I stayed around and, and hung out with the church folks for a few more minutes, maybe 15 more minutes or so. And, and then I headed home and when I got home and I walked in the door, Amy was standing there in the middle of the, the uh, uh, family room with three girls clinging to her, crying hysterically, and uh, she said, we've been robbed. Someone had kicked in the front door and ransacked our house. And the way things worked out, when Amy pulled into the driveway, the lookout parked outside our house, must have radioed the guy inside the house, and as Amy was unloading the kids in the garage and coming in the family room door, he in the very back of the house was running down the hall and out the kitchen, through the kitchen and out the back door, through the backyard, over the fence as she was coming into the house, and they just missed each other. Well, he jumped the fence, jumped into the car, and made his getaway. Long story short, several weeks later, after being traumatized with this uh, break-in, I was getting gasoline one afternoon and went inside to pay back in the day when you could p pump first and pay later. There was a day, young folks, that you could, uh, that they trusted you to pay for your gas. And I just happened to glance down as I was standing in line at the afternoon newspaper and the, the headline read, Pair Nabbed in Parsonage Break-Ins. So I bought the paper, obviously, and interestingly, this couple had been arrested on the west side of Indianapolis. Uh, and when they were arrested, they had in their possession hundreds of three-by-five cards with names and addresses of pastors from all over the Midwest. There's no telling how many pastors' homes they had broken into. They also had telephone books and yellow pages. Now, young folks, let me th you have no idea what yellow pages are, I'm sure. <laughs> It's not a yellow legal-sized tablet we're talking about here. I mean, we used to have, like, real live phone books. I mean, they weren't really alive, but they were real. And you had the white pages, and you had the yellow pages. And so this guy had come to Indianapolis for whatever reason, had looked into the uh, yellow page ads back there. We were a C, so we were at the front of the yellow pages, and... Um, 
found the, the church, found the service times, found the pastor's name, had taken the white pages and cross-referenced and found the pastor's name and address and figured out what time evening service was and, and decided when to, 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 to make his move and, um, and, and broke into people's homes. Can you imagine that? You know, white pastors. We were Carmel Baptist Church. Heritage Baptist Church, further down the alphabet, that pastor lived right around the, the corner from me and is in much better shape than this young struggling couple trying to start out. And, uh, and he didn't even get a, a, a knock on the door, much less his door kicked in. Some thieves aren't as smart. In Colorado Springs, a robber held up a convenience store with a shotgun. After the cashier put the money in the bag, the robber noticed a bottle of whiskey on the shelf behind the cashier and told him to put it in the bag. The clerk told the robber he couldn't because the robber didn't look 21 years old. The robber promptly pulled out his billfold and pulled out his driver's license, showed it to the clerk. The clerk agreed he was 21, put the whiskey in the bag. As soon as the man left the store, the clerk called 911, gave the police his name and his address, and they caught up with him. Jesus used this kind of picture to describe the, the moment, how quickly and unexpectedly he would return. Third, unbelievers will face unavoidable consequences. Unbelievers will face unavoidable consequences. Now, have you been procrastinating about accepting Christ as Savior, if you've been dilly-dallying with making your commitment to the Lord, I want you to tune in and listen very quickly, very carefully, very, very closely. If you have a relative who's been doing the same thing, who's not saved, needs to be saved, listen very carefully. In verse 2, Paul says, For you yourselves know that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. He mentions this day of the Lord. Then he's in verse 3, look at verse 3. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. He speaks of sudden destruction. Now, the day of the Lord is the time when God will judge the world. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter, four, uh, chapter 1, Verse 10, that's, that's his first reference to the second coming. And he states that, that Jesus will deliver us from the wrath to come. So that's his first mention of this, uh, of this warning, the wrath to come. Now notice that Paul suddenly shifts his, his pronouns from you to they. He's referring now not to believers who have been raptured up into heaven but to unbelievers who remain on the earth. And note the phrase, the day of the Lord. The prophet Amos spoke of the day of the Lord centuries before New Testament times. In Old Testament thought, the day of the Lord was a day of judgment, a day when, when God set things right. New Testament writers picked up on this phrase. Peter talked about the day of judgment in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Paul spoke of the day of wrath and the revelation of the judgment of God in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Paul called it the day of redemption, speaking of the deliverance that will come to God's children on that day. 
It's called the day of God in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. The day of Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. The day of the Lord Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. The day of the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul calls it that day, referring to the day of the Lord. Now, now many refer to this time as the tribulation and point to Revelations chapter 6, verses 9, or chapter 6 through chapter 19, those chapters for a description of this, this event. People through the ages have tried to work out the details of the sequence of, of the events surrounding the second coming, the rapture, the tribulation, the, uh, the way it's all going to work out. Primarily, people generally hold one of three views about the second coming, about when Christ is coming, about the tribulation, about how, how all, this, you know, the, all the events of uh, Revelation chapters 6 through 19, how all this is going to work out, the rapture, so forth. Uh, one of three uh, positions. Now you can look these up and read about these for yourself. I'm going to mention them. Some claim to be uh, amillennial. In Re 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 Revelation chapter 20, the Bible says Jesus will set up His kingdom on earth for 1,000 years. But these folks believe that 1,000 years is, is not a literal 1,000 years, but is symbolic. Then there are post-millennials who believe that Jesus will return <clears throat> after 1,000 years of peace and prosperity on the earth. There's going to be a period of peace and prosperity. Then Jesus will return. And then there are the premillennials that believe when Jesus returns, He will establish His kingdom on the earth for a thousand-year reign. And this view is based on the little in, literal interpretation of Revelation chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 6. I don't know about you <clears throat> in your position. One pastor declared that he was pro-millennial. He was for it. Whenever and however it happened, he was just going to leave it to God to work out. And he knew where he was going when the time came. God has his own calendar. His calendar is different than our calendar. His ways are different than our ways. His measurement of time is different than our measurement of time. Uh, a day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like, like a day. Um, and his thoughts are higher than man's thoughts. Again, <clears throat> Paul did not get into specific details, but instead spoke of the unavoidable consequences of Christ's return and implied that some will be unprepared for the day of the Lord. That moment will come, as Paul said, in the twinkling of the eye, and there are going to be plenty of folks who said, I should have. There are going to be plenty of folks who say, I had the opportunity and I didn't. There are going to be plenty of folks who say, I wish I could turn back the clocks of time, the hands of time, and turn back the clock. And they've missed their chance. Christ's second coming will be an unhappy moment for the lost. As joyous, as exhilarating, as wonderful as it will be for the saved when we're raptured, if He comes before we leave this earth, when the dead in Christ shall, shall, shall rise, when, when that reunion takes place in the skies, when, when that trumpet sounds and the voice of the archangel sounds and, and that wake-up call happens, it's going to be a horrible, horrible day for the lost. <clears throat> Look at verse 3. Again, 
Peace and safety, they say. Then sudden destruction comes upon them like as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. They're going to be living their lives. They're going to be enjoying life. They're going to be in their minds secure. They're going to be in a good place. They're going to be moving right along. Life seems to be good. They're giving no thought to God and living what they think is a good life. And then sudden disaster will fall on them. Notice the word sudden. In the Greek, this word is first in the sentence. Giving emphasis. It's placed first for, for emphasis. At the, at the beginning, this, is, this abrupt destruction of life comes without warning. That's what Paul's trying to say. And then they face sudden destruction. Destruction does not mean loss of being. We're not talking about wiping folks out, but a loss of well-being. This word describes unavoidable distress, unavoidable ruin. You think you're secure, you think you're safe, and suddenly you find yourself in a disaster from which there is no escape. An unavoidable disaster from which there is no escape. Unbelievers are living in the face of great danger, and they don't even realize it. Paul pictures a a woman going into labor, a pregnant woman going into labor. She's going about her business, going about her day. She's been planning for this baby. She thinks about this baby all the time. I mean, the time time is coming at some point, but then suddenly something happens, and it's time for this baby to arrive. She goes into labor. The birth process begins. The contractions start, and there's no stopping them. There's no turning back now. This baby's coming. Ready or not. That's what Paul talks about here. Having a baby is a cheerful time. But the return of Jesus will not be a cheerful time for the lost. There will be no escape. That's why today has to be the day of decision. This is why the day has to be the day of the Lord, the, 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 the day, the moment in which you receive Jesus Christ. As Savior. That's why we must do everything we can to introduce the lost to Christ. That's our responsibility and our job, folks, church family, to love people into a life changing relationship with Jesus, to present the gospel and introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you intentionally doing to lead folks to Christ, to have a gospel conversation with folks? to plant seeds and then to go beyond planting seeds when you have the opportunity. What kind of intentional conversation will you have with somebody on our grounds this afternoon? Be praying and thinking in your mind. How can you take what they say and transition it to to a moment in which you you, you share what Jesus is doing in your life or you share your, your testimony of how you came to know Christ briefly and quickly and plant that seed or offered to pray with them. We led somebody to Christ two years ago, right out here on the grounds when they started asking questions. They asked about being baptized. That came out of the blue. We were at a bouncy house, and suddenly we went from bouncing to baptism. That's what God does. That's why you have to be ready. And we talked about what needs to happen before they get baptized, and they prayed right there to receive Christ. Folks, that's what this event this afternoon is all about. To make connections with folks, to love on folks, to go deeper than just how are you doing conversations, and to be ready, to be watchful, Jesus said in Matthew 24, to be ready to share the gospel with somebody. 
Many of you are going to be involved with this this afternoon. God bless you. Thank you. Many of you are not able to be out there for two hours, but you can be praying between two and four that those kind of conversations will take place. Before then, but especially then, between two and four. What are you intentionally doing to help people be ready for that moment when Jesus comes back? Third, we can expect the Lord's return, so we must be faithful. Paul's already been preaching. We've looked at a couple of sermons on how to on living a life to please God. He's already been talking to the, to the Thessalonians and giving instructions about how to please God. This is where we'll pick up next week as we continue this, this passage of Scripture, how to live until Jesus comes. But, but uh, listen carefully to this. Recently, James Dennison recorded a podcast in which his interviewee made this statement. Listen to this statement. You may want to write this down. This world is the closest to hell that a Christian will come, that a Christian will ever be. However, it's the closest to heaven that a lost person will ever be. I can't promise you the Lord will return tomorrow. But I can't promise you he will, he will not return tomorrow. Therefore, our task, speaking of being faithful, is to help every person we know choose Jesus because there's a day coming in which it will be too late for them to choose Jesus. Our task is to live in such a way that we please God very practically, very faithfully, living for Him each moment of each day. What about you if you don't know Jesus? Possibly you're watching online this morning and you've been thinking about a decision to, to accept Christ. I want to encourage you to reach out to us. You see the, the uh, email address on the screen that you can email, you can call, you can stop by the, the Harvest Fest this afternoon and ask for, for one of us, ask for me. Give us the opportunity today to help you accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Maybe you're here this morning and you've not yet said yes to Jesus. Come as soon as we finish up here. Find me. I'll be at the back door greeting folks, hanging around, and let's talk about that. Don't leave this place today without knowing for sure that you're going to heaven when you die. Without knowing for sure that you're going to heaven the moment that Jesus returns. You've put it off long enough. Today is the day to seal the decision and to know for sure. Maybe you've uh, accepted Christ, but you've never followed through in believer's baptism by immersion. We're going to be baptizing next Sunday morning. It's going to be a great day. Come and talk to us about that, what that means, how that happens. Maybe you're ready to move membership in the life of this, this church family. You've prayed about it. You've thought about it. Let's talk about that. What does it take? What does it mean? Again, I asked the question I asked a few moments ago. What is it that you know that God wants you to do that not doing it is disobedience and it's sin? Can you get that part of your heart right with God in this moment of invitation, in this moment of decision? What is it God's leading you to do? Father, we give you thanks for Paul's teaching about the second coming, his encouragement, his comfort to the Thessalonians, Lord, that also are words of comfort to us. Lord, we thank you so much for what you're doing in our hearts, and we pray, Lord, once again for what you're going to do this afternoon, what you're going to do between now and 2 o'clock, what you're going to do now between now and 4 o'clock, what you're doing right now in the hearts of folks who are here in, in person and who are watching online. 
Lord, please move among us as your Holy Spirit pours out upon us in this moment for such a time as this today. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We worship through giving all week long, don't we? As we have the opportunity to, to give back to God out of what He has given to us and blessed us with. And then we take a moment in this worship service to, to thank God for His many, many wonderful blessings. If you're here today for the first time and you feel led to give, we have drop boxes on the doors as you leave on each door. Uh, many of you are mailing your gift, you're, you're doing online giving, you're bringing it on Sundays, you've been faithful to continue to support the church, to allow us to do things like we're doing this afternoon, the Harvest Fest. One of our deacons is going to come and just thank God for His bounty and, uh, and give thanks for this part of our service. I'm ready, are you? All right, great sermon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we come to give back a little of the blessings that you have bestowed upon us, Lord. Just bless the gift and the giver. And Lord, we just pray for a bounty of people here on this campus this afternoon and, and that we can be Jesus too. And Father, we just pray for uh, lives to be touched and uh, people to come to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 